when we're talking about the soul and spirit, are they two different things with different functions? Or is it basically like you saying potato and me saying potato? Hey everybody, my name is Ray Burns, and I want to equip Christians to think biblically about every area of their lives so that they can keep growing in spiritual maturity. And in this episode, I want us to just keep thinking biblically about what it is that human beings are made out of. This is going to be part three of our four-part series. As just a quick recap, part one, we talked about whether human beings can be only natural creatures with no spiritual soul. In the last episode, we talked about the pros and cons of the idea that humans are three-part beings, being body, soul, and spirit. And in this episode, we're just going to keep going and break us down into just two pieces, body and soul. Now, this view is called uh, human beings being a dichotomy, a two-part being. And when I say body and soul, how you would probably see this written usually is body and soul slash spirit. Because what where this differs from a three-part view like we discussed last week is that a, a dichotomy view, a two-part view of man would say that human beings are bodies and they are spiritual. They are physical and spiritual. The Bible will refer to this spiritual side as a soul or a spirit, but they are the same thing. They are the same part, just referred to differently. And now as we are talking about this, this is probably something I should have mentioned last week. I assume it's obvious, but as we're talking about human beings being more than just natural creatures, there's an assumption that we are spiritual, that we do have a spiritual component. And so my goal isn't to prove that we do have a spiritual component, but more that the Bible talks about us as though there is more to us than our natural selves, more than just our brain synapses firing. And so that is the kind of framework or the assumptions that we're going to be working under without doing the legwork to prove it. I think that we can safely say that as followers of Jesus Christ, most of us are going to assume that we do have some spiritual thing about us. We're just trying to understand what that is and how it works. Now, in this particular episode, uh, we're really going to be kind of clarifying or refining a lot of what we talked about last week, because what the big thrust of a dichotomy view, a two-part view of humans, is that one, we're going to be talking about basically just how the soul and spirit are synonyms. They are the same thing, just two different words used for it. And this helps to kind of explain how, while a trichotomy view is accurate in terms of assuming that we have a body and a spiritual component, it is incorrect or it is misguided in thinking that because two different words are used, it describes two different entities, two different things, as opposed to, as we will talk about, how when soul and spirit are used, they're really talking about the same thing. Another thing we're going to be talking about is how the soul and spirit don't actually have different functions, because in a trichotomy view, they say that the soul is kind of the core of who you are. It's the seat of your emotions, your thoughts, your behaviors, your desires. All of that is wrapped up in your soul. All human beings have a soul that basically makes them who they are. Whereas, again, in a three-part view, your spirit is that thing that connects us to God. That spirit in us was dead until we asked Christ to pay the price for our sins to forgive us. And through that, the Holy Spirit regenerated us. He brought our spirits to life. And now we have a body, soul, and spirit all active and alive today. A dichotomy view, what we're talking about today, is that they don't actually have these different functions that are really necessary for human beings to have a three-part component to them. And so that's really what we're just going to look at today. We're going to just be looking at sort of almost a response to trichotomy in saying, one, here's how these things are used in the same way, and two, how the soul and spirit don't actually have different functions, and especially we'll look at why the spirit isn't just this thing that connects us to God. It's not this tether that attaches us to our Heavenly Father. It is talked about really in the same way as a soul would if we were thinking about the different functions that they serve. Now, once again, this is probably going to be a longer episode, so I will have timestamps down in the show notes. If you want to, again, review, jump ahead, whatever, they are down there for you to hopefully help you to uh, just think 
uh, more deeply about this topic. Now, the first thing I want to do, like I said, is just look at some ways that soul and spirit are used synonymously and how we see them performing the same thing, doing the same things or having the same functions. And why this is important is if we were to think about how different our physical and spiritual components are, they are wildly different things. The things that our soul can do, our body can't do. The things that our body can do, our spiritual components can't do. Likewise, within a three-part view, if we have a body that is so unique and different that it has different functions, different behaviors, and different abilities, then we should expect that same division between our soul and our spirit. We don't want to say that they are basically doing the same thing and can be used interchangeably, but somehow they're actually two very different things. Just like a, you know, in a tool belt, a hammer is not a screwdriver. A screwdriver is not a buzzsaw. A buzzsaw is not putty used to fix all the mistakes you make during construction. They are not just things that are kind of different. You know, it's not like the difference between, uh, you know, two different kinds of hammers, but literally the soul and the spirit should be so very different that all their functions, all their forms, everything about them should be so unique that God would have a purpose in giving us three parts instead of just two. And so now let's look at how, despite these things needing to be different and, you know, our soul being that thing that is who we are in our spirit being that thing that connects us to God. Let's just look at some examples of how these things are used in the exact same way, in a way that doesn't make sense with a trichotomy definition of body, soul, and spirit. Now, the first way that we see these similarities is that the soul and spirit can be troubled. In John 12, 27, Christ says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. So here, Christ is talking about how his soul is troubled. His, his innermost spiritual self is bothered and upset about what's about to happen. Then if we just jump ahead in the same book of the Bible, just one chapter later in John chapter 13, verse 21, it says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Here again, this is what we're going to be seeing a lot of is that the soul is troubled. And that makes sense because the soul is that thing within us. It's our thoughts and our emotions. That makes sense that that would be troubled. But the spirit is troubled too. Jesus's spirit was troubled in the exact same way, in the exact same discussion or impression that we get of his soul. Now, for those who may be a little more savvy with Bible interpretation methods, the natural response might be, well, these are probably the same word. It's just that the translators translated them differently. So the Greek word is the same. If, we're, if we could speak and understand the original Greek, this would make sense then. It's just that the translators chose to use soul or spirit for one reason or another. But here, if we look at how the word soul in the Greek and the word spirit in the Greek, we actually have two very different words. So the word soul is suchi. The word spirit is pneuma. So the reason that two different words were chosen here is because two different words were used by John when writing about Jesus Christ. And so we need to pay very careful attention to that because he purposely used these two things that we understand as a soul and as a spirit, but talked about them in the exact same way as though they aren't different things at all. Now, uh, synonym number two, or another way we see these things used similarly is, and before we do, I want to start this with a question. When you sin or when I sin, which aspect of us is sinning? Which part of us is guilty? Which part of us is responsible for committing that sin? Because we know that for the most part, it is our bodies that do the sinning. Our tongue tells the lies. Our eyes go to that website but what is it that is driving our bodies to do that? In other words, is our soul the one that is choosing to sin or is it our spirit? Because maybe we don't think deeply about this. We just know that, oh, we sin and we repent and we have forgiveness from the Father because Jesus Christ has paid the price for every sin we could possibly do. But really thinking about it, we know that as human beings, every time we lie, we steal, we look at pornography, we get angry at our spouse or our kids every time we you know, gossip, whatever it is, we are, some part of us is doing that thing. There is something deep within us that is 
loving sin in that moment. And we are saying, I know this is wrong. I know this is dishonoring to God. I know that Christ has to pay the penalty for this, but I still see it as worth it. My desire for this sinful behavior, the sinful thought, whatever it is, is so worth it to me that I am willing to let Christ pay for it. And so we do that sin. We commit that sin. Now, for the most part, I think we'd say, oh, well, obviously it's our souls that do it. It's the core of who we are, because when we sin, it's no one else's fault. It's not something that we can't help. It is our desires expressing themselves outwardly from our hearts, from our souls, from who we truly are, is where our sin comes from. So we would say, oh, obviously it's our soul. And Ezekiel 18, four, uh, 18 verse 4 would agree with us on that, where it says, behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son, is mine. The soul who sins shall die. So, all right, it's clearly the soul, right? Except, then if we get to Psalm 32, verse 2, it doesn't seem to be just the soul that we can talk about as being guilty of sin. It says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, iniquity being sin here, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So here we can see, again, sin is being committed by either the soul, because Ezekiel says the soul that sin shall die, or our spirit is guilty because our spirit can hold deceitfulness. It can hold a desire to be manipulative, to lie, to cover things up. Again, these two things are used so similarly that you would almost think that maybe they're the same thing, which is two different words used for them. Now, we can see again Mary, in the exact same breath, using soul and spirit to say the exact same thing. So in Luke 1, verse 46 and 47, it says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now, at first blush, we might look at that, and we might think of it maybe almost similar to the 1 Corinthians 14 passage that we read last week, and here, Mary's just saying, oh, well, my soul is doing one thing and my spirit is doing another. They are two different things performing two different functions. Never mind the fact that they're doing basically the exact same thing and that they are directing her to the Lord. But what we also need to know is in Hebrew, which is what Mary would have been familiar with, they have a poetry style called a parallelism the root where they're being parallel, things that are running in line with one another, basically things that are mirroring each other. And what this does is a Hebrew parallelism. It just repeats the same idea in different ways. It says two different things, but they both mean the same thing. Like I just did. I just used a parallelism. I said it repeats the same idea in different ways and that it says two different things that mean the same thing. I just used a parallelism, and that is what we see Mary using as well. She is saying two things very differently, but the point is that she is basically repeating herself in a unique and poetic way to drive home a single point between those two lines. Her soul is magnifying the Lord, her spirit is rejoicing in her God. And just as we would say that Lord and God my Savior in this passage are not two different beings, we would also say that her soul and spirit are doing that same thing. They are driving us to the same point. We can see this elsewhere in scripture. In Psalm 19.8, it says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening my eyes. Here again, the precepts of the Lord and the commandment of the Lord are the exact same thing that he's talking about here. He's talking about the law of God, but he's using them differently to I mean, really, in a way, just be poetic, right? Because poetry is all about saying more than you need to because it's artistic. It's a beautiful thing. It adds creativity to an otherwise maybe generic or bland or straightforward statement. And so just as this psalm is talking about the same thing, we can make the very easy argument that here, even Mary herself, in the same breath, is saying soul and spirit to talk about the same thing, this spiritual part of her that is being directed towards the goodness and majesty of her God. And if we once again want to see an echo from last week, Mark 12.30 says that we need to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, we already concluded why we can't say that this verse teaches that people are four-part beings, but instead it is repeating the same thing, getting at the point that everything about us needs to love our God. 
And so heart, soul, and mind, and strength, they're all getting at that same thing, that same part of us that is just the core of who we are is what needs to love God. So those are just three examples that we're going to look at of how we can see soul and spirit used so similarly that it's very hard to make an argument that they are so functionally different because they are doing the same thing over and over again. They are used interchangeably to where you could say soul here, spirit here, and really the meaning wouldn't be lost. No one would be saying, wait, why are you saying to hammer the nail in with a bulldozer? That doesn't make any sense. Why are you saying to cook the pasta in a bowl of screws for 30 minutes? That's That doesn't make sense. You know, And that's not what we're seeing here. We're not seeing a soul and a spirit used in a way that the other word couldn't be swapped in and it would be confusing because the two things don't seem to be so functionally different that it would matter. It's just a word choice used by the author or the speaker in that moment. Now, getting past just synonymous uses where people are saying the same word in different ways, uh, I also want us to look at just some reasons or some ways that a trichotomy views insistence on us being completely separate in terms of soul and spirit and why this just doesn't match up. So first I want to look at why our spirit does not make sense to be our connection to God, whatever that means. Because while within a trichotomy view, it makes sense to say we are body, soul, and spirit, and we assign these different roles or functions to them. The Bible just doesn't seem to agree with that way of thinking. It doesn't seem to assign a single job or task or purpose to the soul that is wholly and completely unique from the spirit. Now let's look and see some instances where we see the spirit of a person mentioned and why within that it doesn't make sense for the spirit to just be a connection to God. So first let's look at Romans 1.9, which says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you. So again, if we read this from a trichotomy view, This wouldn't make sense because his spirit can't be the thing that serves. What Paul should have said is that because his spirit is alive to God, he serves with his soul because it's his choices, his desires, his intentions, his purposes that are serving God. And that should come from his soul. His spirit should just be the thing that influences it in such a way that because his spirit is alive to God, he can serve with his soul. But that's not what we see here. We see that his spirit is the thing that is serving. It is his spirit that is choosing to glorify God and how he is serving these believers and how he is serving Jesus Christ with that spirit. Now, going further on, just in Romans, uh, now Romans 8.15, it says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So here, we see spirit used as kind of this intentional choice that we have. We have a spirit, we were born into a spirit of slavery, where we had basically no choice but to sin. Everything we do was sinfully driven, and so it had sinful results. Even the best things that we tried to do came from sinful motivations and desires because we didn't do anything with a desire to please God, but instead, because we were slaves to sin, all we could do was serve sin. But now we were, we've received this spirit of adoption where we can choose to love God because we are adopted into his family. We are no longer his enemies, but we are not even just his friends. We are his children and he loves us in that way. And because we are children of God, we can make decisions that can still be good by the world standards, but our motivation comes not from a spirit of slavery, but a spirit of adoption, a spirit of freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. But again, this all goes back to that question, what is it about us that chooses to sin? And here, this spirit of slavery is our desires, our choices that we make of whether or not we sin. And that doesn't make sense because it should be our soul that is choosing to sin. But here it is a spirit of slavery or a spirit of adoption. And then in Romans 8 verse 11, it says, God gave them a spirit of stupor eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Here we see that spirit is being used as a belief system that people have. It's not this weird, I know there's some belief in the church today about, you know, there are literally spirits of stupor, spirits of anger, spirits of pride, whatever, as though there are these actual manifestations of sin. 
But here, if we look at the actual context, he's saying that God gave them a spirit of stupor or, or basically misguided, blind beliefs. And he clarifies because they had eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear. In other words, the spirit of stupor was just their unbelief. Again, our belief in a three-part view comes from our soul, and yet it's the spirit of stupor. It is a, a soul of unbelief that these people had. Again, spirit here makes no sense about a connection to God because it is a specific kind of spiritual condition that these people had that goes far beyond either spiritually dead or spiritually alive. Now, here's going to be kind of a fun one. Uh, So 1 Corinthians 2.11 says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So here we see that our spirit is our thought patterns. It's our inbuilt beliefs. It's the core of who we truly are. Because what is ultimately being said here is who really knows someone thought, someone's thoughts except the mind, the core, the consciousness of that person. We can make assumptions on what someone believes based on their actions, based on the words they say, but we can't truly know what is going on in their mind. Only they humanly speaking, can know what's going on in them because only the core of who they truly are is going to understand the thoughts, motivations, and intentions of that individual. And again, that should be a soul. But if we read this, and if we replace spirit with connection to God, which is what a three-part view of a person would have to say, it makes no sense. Because what it would have to say then is, who knows a person's thoughts except the connection to God of that person? That's weird. That makes no sense. If instead we were to replace it and say, who knows a person's thoughts except the soul of that person? Well, sure, that makes a lot of sense because soul is the core of who a person is. But here, the fact that spirit is used is a good indicator of why soul and spirit are used interchangeably and why spirit can't just mean our spiritual connection to God or how we relate to him. And again, if we want to do kind of a a thought swap for the word spirit as connection to God, 1 Corinthians 5.3, for though I am absent in body, I am present in my connection to God. Well, no, that doesn't make sense because what it says is though I'm absent in body, I'm present in spirit. Because what is it about Paul that is actually present there? He is present in his thoughts and in his beliefs and in his want to be there. Because here he's talking about how even though he's not there physically, he is basically on board with them pronouncing judgment on someone who has sinned in the church. And so what he's saying is that my beliefs, my will, my desires are there with you in this letter and in what I am saying to you. Again, it is just completely illogical to say it's his connection to God that's present with them. Now, getting off of that, we can also see that when spirit is used in the Bible, It's used to talk about spiritual beings. In other words, all spiritual creatures are spirits, not souls. So in Matthew 8.16, we can see an example of this. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. So he cast out people's connections to God. Except that doesn't make sense because we know that they were oppressed by demons and he cast out those spirits, those demons, those spiritual entities. And so just based on the context of, you know, this verse, but also what we know about reading about, you know, demons or spirits in the Bible, what do we know about them? One, we know that they are individual beings. We know that there are a finite number of angels, of cherubim, of seraphim, of whatever is all out there. We know that there are a a limited number of spiritual beings that are still for God. We know that there are a limited number of spiritual beings who are against God. We know that there are demons. We know that there are fallen angels. We may or may not know that they are actually different, but that is far beyond the scope of this episode. But we know that they are, they are actual beings, just like a human is an independent individual person, so are spirits in the Bible. We know that they are capable of independent thought. We know that they have desires. You know, we, we've seen demons respond to Christ or the apostles, and they are actually capable of, of speech, of thought. 
We know that they have identities. We know one such identity is Legion, you know, this this cluster of demons that identifies themselves as a single, you know, we I am Legion. We also know that we have, uh, you know, archangels. We have Lucifer. And so we see throughout the Bible, we have all these these spirits present, but they're not referred to as souls, they're referred to as spirits. And yet, everything about them, we would actually attribute to a, a soul. And so just looking at this Matthew passage, why not say that, that he was casting out evil souls? Well, because ultimately it doesn't make sense. You can use soul, you can use spirit. It's talking about the same thing. It's this immaterial part of what was oppressing these people. It was this, this spirit being that had everything attributed to it that we would attribute to just an actual soul like we have. And then finally, just something to really consider is the fact that the Holy Spirit's name is the Holy Spirit. And that's intentional. God's not going to randomly have reveal a part of the Trinity calling him Holy Spirit, just randomly picking a name out of the hat. And one thing we know about the Holy Spirit is that he's not just a tether, right? He's not just God's connection to us, like we would say our spirit is our connection to God. We know that the Holy Spirit is a whole person. He's, he's an actual being. And so we want to make sure that we're being consistent in our definitions when if God is identifying part of the Trinity as spirit by proper name, then we want to make sure that if we are thinking about spirits, we don't want to say that a spirit is a connection to God, except for the Holy Spirit, who actually is a being, a person with thoughts, intentions, independent actions, and things like that. And so to wrap up this first half of the proofs for human beings being a dichotomy, one thing we want to ask ourselves is, okay, so why are there different terms? Why are the biblical writers saying spirit instead of soul or soul instead of spirit? Why is the Holy Spirit named the way that he is? And so in terms of just trying to give a simple answer that we can have in mind as we're reading and puzzling through these things, one thing that we can say by what we've observed is that the spirit is what we would say is often what's talked about when we are relating to God. Our soul is often talked about as the core of who we are. In other words, a trichotomy view is actually accurate in that the spirit is often used to refer to when we are relating to God and the, the spiritual life, the spiritual health of us. Our soul, likewise, is often used to talk about the core of who we are. But the important thing and what actually matters is that that's not how it always is. It's not always talked about individually or in a way where it, there's a clear line between the two things. And why might that be the case? Well, I think um, there's a, a, a man named Michael Patton who I think has given a really good and simple explanation to it, and that is that it is similar to how we would refer to heart and mind today. So today when we talk about our hearts, you know, I feel it in my heart, I'm heartbroken, my heart is sick, we're using that to talk about our emotions, we use it to say, you know, my, you know, I feel it in my emotions. I feel emotionally compelled to do something. You know, I just, I know something deep in my emotion. It's not logical. It's just, it's down in my heart. I know that this is right. I know that this is true or wrong or whatever. We talk about our heart like we talk about emotion, whereas we talk about our minds in terms of our rational thought. And so our mind and our emotion seem to be talked about as two totally separate things with two separate sources. And we even know that the two things don't always agree, right? What we know in our hearts and what we know in our heads don't always get along. And unfortunately today, a lot of times it's our heart that wins out because we go with what is emotionally pleasing more than what is intellectually or logically right. But the reality is that the two things are just basically two different functions of the same thing. And that is our, what I will go ahead and say is our souls. Our emotions are a part of our soul, just as our ability to think and reason through things is a part of our soul. And so when we're talking about our heart, we're talking about our minds, they seem to be two separate things. We seem to be talking about two different things, but really we're talking about a whole 
complex person and how such a complex and intricate and unique and sometimes very confusing thing works to try to get through life. So sometimes our emotions, that irrational part, that thing that doesn't make sense, but that we can't ignore because of how it makes us feel, that seems like a separate thing from that thinking rational part of us that says, you know, I don't care what I feel, only what is true. And we think about it, you know, like a robot, but really all they are is just expressions of who we as people are. You know, in this way, our, our emotions are basically just our unchecked desires. They are our desires that have not been brought in line or under the subjection, if you will, of our, our rational minds. Whereas our thoughts and the decisions that we make from our thoughts are basically our desires that have gotten in line with what is good and accurate and right. And as Christians, we want our minds to be under subjection to God's word and the, the truth of Jesus Christ. But again, all that to say that when we today talk about hearts and minds, we're talking about two very different things. Likewise, soul and spirit are talking about two very different expressions of the same thing. The spirit is that usually referred to that part of our core of who we are that relates to God. The soul is the part of us, of our core, that reflects who we are. It's our thoughts, our emotions, our desires, our preferences. All that is wrapped up in how we might talk about the soul. But ultimately, at the end of the day, what we can see is that the Bible portrays us in two parts. We are physical and we are spiritual. It just discusses those physical or those spiritual things as though they're different, simply as a poetic way to break down. When I'm talking about spirit, here is what I'm kind of implying, just like we talk about our emotion. When I say my soul or our soul, here is what I'm kind of talking about, just like we might use the mind. It's all wrapped up into the exact same thing, which is the core of who we are is our soul. It's our spiritual half. Our physical bodies are our other half to who we are, but all we are is made of two parts. We are physical and we are spiritual. When we talk about the spiritual, it's soul or spirit, but they are saying the same thing. They're talking about the same essence of a human being. Now, all that being said, that seems convincing. And like I said, um, in terms of what we've talked about so far, I find this, of the three that we've talked about, I find a dichotomy view of the human body or human nature to be the most biblically compelling. However, there are some definite issues that we need to talk about when it comes to a dichotomy view of humans that we should discuss before we just jump on board and say, oh, yes, this is clearly right. Now, problem number one, and I'm going to say this is not actually an argument against it, but I know that it's a reaction or a response that people are going to have to this view. And that is simply that it's not trichotomy, right? Dichotomy is not trichotomy. And there are people out there who are very sold out to this idea or this understanding that we are three-part beings. And dichotomy is simply wrong because it feels wrong, because it's not what people are accustomed to. And a lot of people will even develop, I mean, bigger theologies out of this idea that just like God is three parts, we are three parts, and they will, you know, go further with that. And so there's going to be resistance to this idea that we are actually two-part beings simply because that requires setting aside a lot of what we've previously believed or understood about the, the, the core of what human beings are made out of. Again, it's a bad argument, and it's a sinful and pride-filled argument, but it is an argument that we do need to pay attention to. Now, another problem we see is that the Old Testament still doesn't see a separation. We talked about in episode one with monism, in that when the Old Testament talks about a soul, it's just talking about a living thing. It's talking about anything that has breath and thoughts and, and whatever, it's whatever breeds is considered a soul in the Old Testament. Likewise, even though the Bible does refer to spirits, what it's really talking about is just the attitudes or beliefs of a person. But attitude and belief doesn't require a spiritual component to them. If you talk to anyone that believes in a naturalistic worldview where there is no spiritual realm whatsoever, they will tell you that, you know, attitudes, beliefs, feelings. Those don't come from some spiritual component of a person. It's just how their brains are so complexly evolved, I guess. We won't get into that. But it's how our brains are so complex that we are capable of having these thoughts and beliefs and emotions and, and 
all this stuff, but it's not, it's all physical. It's all just how our brains are wired. But ultimately what this boils down to is that biblically speaking, especially in the Old Testament, there doesn't seem to be a genuine separation between a person's physical and their spiritual, whether in that makes them two parts or three parts. The Old Testament sees humans as a single component. It's just that when it talks about that kind of core, who, who we are, our thoughts, emotions, beliefs, it just says spirit, but really just using that as kind of a poetic blanket term for something about a person's internal thoughts, internal belief system. Now, another issue is that while we might think that we have a handle on how the Bible talks about the soul and the spirit being the same thing, it's also very possible that we are misreading what the Bible means and that we haven't yet come to a good conclusion that all these discussions about, you know, are we one or two or three parts may be completely off. Because if you think about it, a lot of what we do when we try to discover, you know, how are human beings made? What is our physical and spiritual components? A lot of it is, well, we see this word used here. And so we are defining the soul and the spirit, not by any kind of dictionary definition, because really God's word isn't, among other things, it's not a dictionary. It doesn't have an, a divinely inspired appendix in the back that says, thus saith the Lord, a spirit is this. Instead, we are being detectives. We are trying to piece together how a word or different words are used, trying to come to a conclusion that says, okay, based on all the evidence before us, here is what the Bible seems to imply about the human's spiritual self or spirit nature. But that doesn't mean that that's actually right. It just means that to our best guess, this is what appears to be right in our limited mind, intellect, and understanding. But here's the problem is that We've seen this throughout church history and that there's something that is clearly shown in the Bible, but it's not until people have really kind of buckled down and dug in and honestly try to set aside as much of their preconceived notions and their traditions as possible and says, what does God's word clearly teach? A very clear example of this is the Trinity. Although the Bible, again, doesn't have a little dictionary thing that says God is three persons in one and here's how it works— it's the, the existence of the Trinity, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are clearly evident in the Bible, not as three individual gods, not as one God putting on kind of three different masks and appearing in different ways, but three persons who all make up a single God is present in Scripture. But it wasn't until 325 AD that this idea of the Trinity was fully defined. And that was ultimately because by that point, people had kind of assumed they knew what the Trinity was. I mean, this wasn't a new belief that was brought up, but it was when the true nature of God as Trinity was challenged by heretics out there, honestly, that Christians came together and said, okay, we have to truly dig in and see what does God's word clearly teach about whether or not God is Trinity, three different gods, two gods. What does God's word clearly reveal? And that is how we have come to a concrete understanding of our belief of the Trinity today. But what we want to ask ourselves is when it comes to the idea of the human soul and or spirit, we have an entire Internet's worth of access to us. We have books upon books that have been written over the centuries. We have a lot of material telling us about the soul, but it is very possible that we are still decades or even centuries away from true clarity to the point that this debate on whether humans are two parts or three parts in the future, we may look back and just see that we were so very misguided because what human beings really are is evident in scripture. It's just that the debate was going in the completely wrong direction. And that's the problem is that we don't know. So no matter how compelling a dichotomy view of humans is ultimately it boils down to a theory because it is not clearly, concretely, with no shadow of doubt, laid out in God's word. And then finally, what I would argue is the biggest, almost most insurmountable problem with a dichotomy view is this, if we're going to be real, if we're going to boil it down, we are going to say that human beings are two independent parts. We have a body and we have a soul. But when we talk about the body... Our body is always just kind of this physical thing. And 
our soul is who we truly are. You know, our bodies are kind of whatever, but it's our souls that are who we truly are. And what we ultimately have to say, if we're going to be honest, is that in a dichotomy view, we are souls just driving a body around. Some of us have very luxury vehicles that we're driving around in. Some of us have some, you know, old broken down, you know, janky wagons that are being held together with duct tape. But ultimately, we all have these, you know, kind of pure, intact souls that have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. We just, you know, happen to drive around in different forms in different vehicles, but our vehicle doesn't define who we are. It's not who we truly are. It's what's inside that counts, right? And so what this is saying is that the spiritual aspect of a person, their soul is who they truly are. Their body is just what they are contained in. It's it's their particular Tupperware container that's holding onto their soul. Now you might say, well, so what? I mean, that's accurate, right? You know, we're not our bodies. Who we are isn't this naturalistic evolution mentality of, you know, human beings are just natural functions and forms. But what dichotomy does is it drives a clear and dividing wedge between the physical and spiritual. And this is actually what I believe is a an echo or a holdover from Gnosticism that the even the New Testament writers were fighting against. You know, Paul deals with Gnosticism a lot when he's writing to people in the early church. And now, one of these days, I'm just going to do an episode on Gnosticism and just say, hey, if you want to know more, go look at you know this episode at this timestamp. But we're not there yet. So without spending a lot of time rehashing something I've talked about probably five or six times on this podcast, very simply put, Gnosticism was this belief among uh, the, everything else involved in it. But sim- simply put, Gnosticism was this idea that the spiritual realm was good and pure. The physical realm was bad and evil. So in the Gnostic church, you know, Christians who were trying to hold on to Gnosticism, they would say that Jesus didn't have a physical body because physical things are bad. He just appeared to have a body, but he was really just purely spirit. That's why some of the biblical writers actually have to hammer on the fact that he was a physical being simply to combat this bad belief system back then. But ultimately, what it does, though, is it elevates the spiritual side of the world or especially of humans. And it, it basically it tells us, hey, we're just sitting here. We're just waiting to be set free from these physical confines, from this this broken world with these failing bodies. And one day our souls are just going to be set free and we will live in perfection forever. And so they would say that our mind is ultimately all that we are, our, you know, in a, in a Christian sense, our soul is all that we truly are. Our bodies are just these things kind of holding us to earth and letting us kind of cruise around and interact with strawberries and iPhones. But one day we're going to be free because this, te- this world is temporary. These bodies are temporary, but one day we're going to go and we're going to be in heaven forever as souls. And we're just going to be worshiping Jesus all the time. Well, no. And this is why I say that Gnosticism is so dangerous and so pervasive in the church, because there are still Christians today. I've heard from pulpits, pastors say how one day we're all going to die and we're going to spend eternity in heaven. And there's just this, without without realizing it, we completely discount our physical forms, our physical bodies. We see them as throwaways and unimportant to who we are. You know, our bodies are just kind of these things that we have for now, but one day we're going to be free of them. But that's not how God's word portrays human beings, and it's not how eternity itself is portrayed. Instead, what we do see in the Bible is that there's going to be an eternal heaven, but there's also going to be an eternal and new and perfect earth. So Revelation 21 verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. So for those of you that have a terror of the ocean, The new earth is going to be awesome for you. For those of you who like sailing, sorry. But really, what we see, though, is that the heaven that we have today is going to be done away with. The earth that we have today is going to be done away with. Jesus Christ is going to make all things new and perfect. We're going to, in a way, go back to Genesis 1 when God made everything and it was perfect. Except in this new earth, there's not going to be the chance for sin because we're not going to have that sin nature within us, and we're not going to have a tree of the knowledge of good and evil for Satan to tempt sin-free people to sinning towards. And so what we're going to have is we're going to have an earth that we get to live on eternally with new bodies. 
it's not just going to be our souls living in heaven. We are going to have new and perfect bodies along with our perfect souls that will have been washed from sin. And we can see this idea that, that this freedom from our bodies, that our bodies are just kind of in the way, there are these broken things that we need to cast off, is not biblical. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 52, it says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So here, we're talking about the resurrection. We are all, all people are going to be resurrected, sinners and saints, those who love God and have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, and those who die as enemies of God. We will all be raised, but God's people are going to be raised into imperishable bodies. If you think about the body that Christ had after his resurrection, that is a picture of what we are going to be like. We are going to have these perfect and glorified bodies forever as we live on the new earth. So again, this idea, this this belief that Christians have that we are just waiting to get rid of our bodies because they don't matter and we're just going to you know have our souls and our souls are going to be in heaven and it's going to be awesome is just not biblical. It is a holdover from Gnosticism. I truly believe that this ancient heresy that people don't even, I mean, most of us don't even know how to spell. It's so weird. The name is weird. The beliefs are weird, but it is so entrenched in Christianity that we don't even realize that there are pastors today who love Jesus Christ and who know how to read their Bibles, but they are so set in these beliefs that they don't even realize that they are teaching something about this eternal living in heaven that just isn't really there in God's word. And so the biggest reason that I think that a dichotomy view doesn't work or the biggest issue is that what it essentially does is it paints us and it has to do this because it separates the body and the soul as two two separable and distinct things is that it essentially turns us into Power Rangers driving around our giant robots. You know, if you remember in the 90s, Power Rangers, they would get into these giant robots and they'd be driving them around. The Power Rangers weren't the robot. They were just inside it. They were driving it around. And if you're older, maybe Voltron makes more sense. If you're younger, I don't know. There's, I know there's stuff out there because there's always pe- people driving around robots. But ultimately what it does, though, is it diminishes the value of our body. It diminishes a part of a thing that God gave us. He created Adam perfect, and Adam had a body. So we know that our bodies matter. They are a core part of who we are. They aren't just a vehicle that we drive around in. When we talk about our body as the temple of God, that's not just some kind of light language. Our bodies matter. They are just as essential to who we are as our souls. And ultimately, at the end of the day, our bodies and souls aren't meant to be separated. It's actually incredibly unnatural to think that our souls could be content apart from our bodies, which means that while heaven is going to be amazing because we get to see Jesus, we get to live in a sin-free paradise, it's not meant to be forever because it we are incomplete when we are in heaven because we won't have our bodies and our bodies are a necessary part to who we are. And so a dichotomy view, it can kind of try to wiggle out of it, but ultimately it is potentially a holdover or a growth from this Gnostic idea that our souls are these pure things and our bodies are these broken and disgusting things. And all we're doing is just trying to not be too corrupted by this physical world so that one day we can be set free and we can live forever in this spiritual paradise. Sounds good. And it's a very popular belief but I don't think we can truly argue that from God's word. So you might be thinking, okay, so we're not one part. We're not three parts. Apparently we're not two parts. So is there something better? And that's what we're going to talk about next week. Because so far, to recap where we've been, we've seen three views. We've seen monism, which at best is really reaching to struggle with some you know, weird definitions and things like that, or it's a narrow-sighted view. At worst, it's a it's our attempt to compromise with the world and say, all right, look, if you don't want to say that humans have souls, fine, we can get on board with that. We'll say that they're natural too, and we can even defend it from the Bible. You know, that's worst case scenario of why that's an appealing one. But I think we saw it's, it doesn't hold much water. Uh, we looked at a trichotomy view. And the biggest issue with seeing humans as three parts is that one, 
it requires us to read certain verses in isolation and it falls apart when we try to be consistent with it and apply those uh, reading methods elsewhere in God's word. In this episode, we talked about a dichotomy view. Humans are two parts. And of the three, dichotomy, I believe, is far and away the best. I don't think it is, from my understanding, from what I have studied, the the gap between a trichotomy view and a dichotomy view are, are big. It's not like one is just equal with the other or one's a little better. I believe that a dichotomy view far and away is the best explanation of the three that we have. But, like I said, separating humans into two separate and separable aspects is a huge problem. And so that's why, in the next episode, I want to offer a view or an understanding of what humans are made of that is going to be very different from what a lot of you are accustomed to. It's going to maybe be a struggle to get through, but I do believe, even though it's not perfect, even though, you know, decades from now, we might find an even better understanding based purely on God's word of what humans are made of. I believe that what we're going to talk about next week is the most accurate and true to looking at the entirety of God's word, Old Testament and New Testament, to try to understand how our perfect God has made us. So if you would like to get prepared for next week, I will make one recommendation to you, and that is to watch or to listen to my podcast episode from June 2nd in 2021, and it's titled, Where Do Our Souls Come From? Number three, Reproduction. That will help lay some groundwork and really hammer home a lot of what I'm going to be saying, because I believe that where we get our souls will help us best understand how our souls and our bodies work together or how God has composed them to work. And so it is not, but it is by no means a necessary one. I will very briefly go over that episode, but if you are really interested at this point, if you are really curious about what can be more convincing than what we've talked about so far, that is the episode I'd recommend you listen to from June 2nd of 2021. And so for now, I'll just leave this off and get ready to see you next time for what I believe is the most biblically accurate understanding of the human soul. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others. Or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash onward in the faith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ.